Hey, it's Jonathan Wall, one part of the Fully Equipped crew. With the Ryder Cup dominating the headlines this week, we're deploying a special interview with short game whisperer Parker McLaughlin. It's not a stretch to say Parker has been one of the hottest names in the instruction space over the last year. He's made the seamless transition from full-time tour pro to instructor with a unique approach that's caught the attention of a few big-time names, including Colin Morikawa, Keith Mitchell, Joel Damon, and Bo Hostler. In this lengthy sit-down interview, Parker and I get into his rise to stardom in the instruction space, what he's learned from working with some of the best pros in the world, how the short game chef nickname, and yes, that is his nickname, and it is incredible, came to be, his take on the current state of wedge technology, the proposed golf ball rollback, his best short game tips for amateurs, and oh, so much more. It's a fantastic interview loaded with gear and instruction goodness. Enjoy it. Well, he's fresh, fresh off a trip to upstate New York. I've been trying to get him on the pod. Finally make it happen. Former PGA Tour winner turned, I'm going to call him a short game whisperer. I know short game guru is kind of like the poppy one, but I'm going to say short game whisperer. Parker McLaughlin. Parker, what's up, man? I'm all good. Uh, I do like the I do like the term whisperer because I think it's a good, I, I do feel like there's more involved than just like pure instruction or whatever. Sometimes it, there is a little bit of whispering, especially at the highest level. You got to be like, hey, you're really, really good. Don't forget that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so first things first. How was Oak Hill, and did Rory leave anything in his in his locker for you? Uh, no, there was nothing in the locker, sadly. But uh, Oak Hill is awesome. Jeez, um, I did a clinic up there. They're playing the John R. Williams, like a, a mid am two ball event, um, and so it, it was. Did a clinic, did did a speaking thing that night, and then played after the clinic. And that golf course kicked me in the teeth. Holy cow, that that place is hard. It's a re- it's a really difficult golf course, and I've I've been there. It's in the summer. It's even worse. Like the golf course is tough. It's gonna like beat you, and just bludgeon you to death. And then you have the like if it's rainy, if it's humid, like it can, it can definitely wear you down. Yeah, yeah. Tough tough track. I, I'm a glutton for punishment, but you know I I had probably played one round of golf in the previous two months, and so going there and just being like slightly off, slightly yeah. off, you know, just in the just in the bunker or just in the rough, and it was like. Sheesh! It was like I couldn't get off the bogey train. <laughs> Which is for somebody like you, who's who's actually one of the PGA tours, yeah. is, is just like man. The, I don't even want to know what I would have shot. So, how many pleasure rounds do you do you get like per year? Because you are so busy, man. Yeah, and also you're you're still playing out on tour. Yeah, I, I was saying I was saying to somebody the other day, they're like, "Oh, you you played on tour this year?" I was like, "Yeah, I played a couple of events," and I would say like, you know, that's two rounds plus two rounds because I missed the cut at both by a couple shots. That's four rounds. And then, you know, pro-am, you know, it's probably six, seven, eight rounds total. I was like, that's probably like, honestly, half of the rounds I played this year. So I probably played 16 to 20 rounds total. I just haven't had the time to go out and enjoy. I've been busy building the, the website, doing stuff with Vokey, doing a bunch of filming, trying to get good content out there for people. And the mission statement for me has gone from tour player to now I want to get people the best information they can with any type of shot around the green so that they can enjoy the game more, shoot lower scores and just make golf easier for people. So you turn pro in 2003, but I want to know how far back does the dream go of wanting to play professional golf? It was probably 12 is when I, when I first had the dream, it was at junior worlds in San Diego. And I had shot like, I think I shot like four over the first day and I didn't putt very well. And I played in the morning round and we went back to the hotel, hung out. And I told my dad, I said, I want to go back to the golf course and I want to putt. And we putted and then it got dark. And then I said, hey, pull the car over here, put your lights on. And I putted for another hour with his car lights on. Next day, I went out and shot six under and finished sixth and got me into like a trip to Japan for the junior junior world against, you know, Japan versus America. And so it was that was sort of the moment where I was like, Oh, this is cool. Like I really, I really earned that six under par. Like I worked my butt off and I earned it. And that was sort of where I, I kicked in. That was sort of where the dream started, where I was like, I could be one of the best in the world at this. Your mom was a volleyball stud. Team USA. Yeah. Like big, big time. Yeah. Did, did you have any interest in, in playing volleyball or did you play any other sports growing up besides golf? Yeah. I mean, uh, I said it at the, the dinner the other night, uh, golf was sort of my third, my third love. Um, I would say basketball and volleyball were up there because my dad was a basketball coach. Mom was, you know, Olympic volleyball player. 
And so I was raised in the gym. So I was a gym rat. And so it was either a volleyball or a basketball always in my hands. And then golf kind of came third. So yeah, I, I had this thought in my head that I was going to go and play volleyball in college. And so I went to UCLA and the most famous volleyball school on the planet. Yeah. Al Skates won, I don't know, 17, 18 national championships. And so, you know, he was friendly with my dad and I said, Hey, can I come and try out? And he's like, yeah, we'd love to have you. I know you got skills. And I went for like three practices in the fall and I was like, Oh my God, these guys are so good <laughs> and they're so huge. And so I quickly realized I was like, yeah, I'm going to just slide back over into golf. Yeah. I'm not going to be playing two sports in college, but I did have the idea and the thought of like, I'm gonna, yeah, I could play two sports in college. Yeah. So I know I mentioned you're still playing some tour events now, but I want to, what's, what's the biggest difference between the tour from like your heyday, like when you, when you were playing full time to now when you're out there as a coach? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, you know, like I came out with Anthony Kim, Dustin Johnson, like those are the guys that I kind of graduated Q school with. Um, pretty legendary, legendary guys, but that was, so, you know, also the heyday of Tiger, you know, 07, 08. Um, you were out there for some pretty like, yeah. incredible years, like for Tiger Woods. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that was, that was the crazy part was I, I remember I played well my second year. I played well at Torrey first two days and I was in the group behind Tiger on Saturday. He went out just in front of me and I was like, thank God I'm not in front of him because that was, that was those days where you're like, you needed to make sure where like, okay, the, the second Tiger finishes on a hole, he, oh, people are yeah, sprinting ahead and they don't care if you're teeing off. So it was, it was good to be behind him, but that was, you know, that, that was those heydays. And I played with Phil at Pebble first three days, um, in 2009, kind of right in the middle of his heyday as well. And, and, you know, just to see these guys up close, it was, you know, two of the greatest of, of really any generation, but two of the greatest of all time. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty amazing. I think, I think now, you know, it, there's definitely more like, it's like a team, right? It's like, you're just going with your guy. It's like if on the coaching side of it, like you're just going with your guy, you're sort of following him. I'd say back, uh, when we first, when I first came out on tour playing, there wasn't necessarily like four or five or six people in a team. It was sort of like, you'd have your coach come out maybe once a month. That was sort of the beginning of like coaches kind of coming out every week. Um, and I'm still of the mentality of like, I want to be able to give my guys the ownership so that they can take it and be like on a Sunday afternoon when they're choking their guts out that they can trust in their ownership of the material that I've given them. And so I don't want them to feel like I'm going to be with them every single week. So I, I like to tell them, hey, look, this is going to be a relationship where I want you to own the material and I'm not going to be out there holding your hand, you know, as, as you go through each week. I don't, I don't think that that's necessary for what I'm trying to give you. You should be able to own this, you know, week in and week out once we do the work. So it'll be a check-in kind of a thing, like once a quarter, like I check in with Keith Mitchell once a quarter. It's like, hey, you know, Masters, how's it going? Like, you know, uh, Shriners, we usually do like a check-in at Shriners in September. Hey, how's it, how's, how's it, or October, how's everything looking? How's it feeling? Um, but it's not an every week kind of a thing. And I think that's the biggest difference from, you know, Oh six, Oh seven, Oh eight till, you know, 2023. It's like now you, you, you try to go and see, you know, you, you just sort of name the player. I, I would say, I would say Rory's a little different. I'd say Rom's a little different. Those guys sort of really own their own their stuff, but most of the top 20 players in the world, there's a team of like two, three, four, five guys that are sort of standing behind them on the range from equipment guy to a, a physio to a weight training guy to a, a short game guy to a putting guy to a full swing guy to a mental coach. It's probably seven I named, right? Those guys are standing behind, you know, at the beck and call of that player. To me, that's like, boy, does, does that player really need all of that? All those people right there? Depends on who you ask. <laughs> but I think it's also a, you know, it's potentially also a buffer, right? It's sort of like, hey, that's your squad. And it's a buffer for somebody random to come in there and be like, hey, I want five minutes of your time. Back in our day, it was like, you throw the headphones on, right. tune out the world. Now it's sort of like, hey, I've got, my, I've got my squad behind me. I've got my team behind me and you can't really penetrate them to get access to me.
Everyone, I hope you're enjoying the interview with Parker. There's a lot to dive into, but before we get back to it, I have to let you know that Fully Equipped is brought to you by Golf Pride because Golf Pride knows that a grip isn't just a grip. It is the only connection that you have between you and your golf club, including, which Parker talks a lot about, your wedges and your short game as well. And don't forget, they have putter grips too. But remember, the reason we talk about grips so much is because Golf Pride knows, and we know as people who work with all kinds of different golfers and talking to different golfers, is when you have the right grip as far as texture, as far as size, as far as even just getting the taper down right, you're going to be gripping your golf club more confidently, swinging it better and swinging it faster because you can also gain a little bit of yardage as well. So when it comes to different grips and grip options, Golf Pride has a ton of them. There's the MCC, which offers hybrid technology, which is cord in your upper hand and a softer uh, more traction in your lower hand. Then there's the Z grip, which offers the firm, which is the firmest performance grip that they offer, which has a cotton core throughout the entire thing to offer all weather traction. So whether it is it's it's uh, you know it's hot, it's humid out, or your hands are sweating, or you're just playing out in the rain, you're going to get that. Now on the other end of things, there's the CPX and the CP2, which are options that are completely and all about comfort. CPX is their softest performance grip, which uses all types of different textures to help reduce vibration and increase comfort. And they come in a whole bunch of different sizes. And then there's also the CP2, which is a wrap style design, which uses control core, which is also um, a little piece that fits underneath the top hand, which helps reduce torque. So even though it is a softer grip, you get all type of control throughout your entire bag. And they come in all different types of sizes as well. Now, if you're looking to try any of these options, you can head over to golfpride.com. Use code fully equipped, that is F-U-L-L-Y-E-Q-U-I-P-P-E-D to get free shipping on your next order. That's available for all orders in the United States. And there is no minimum purchase required. So you want to try a couple grips or you want to get a, a full rack of grips for your full set of golf clubs, including your wedges and your putter, head over to golfpride.com. Check it out today. Now, we'll head back to the interview with Parker McLaughlin. So as I mentioned, you're you're now a, a short game whisperer. When did you start to think that you had a future on the instructional side? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I worked with, uh, Kevin Streelman. That was sort of like my very first lesson I gave was to Kevin Streelman and he was ranked 93rd in the world. And I'm like, boy, I, this is, I, I better figure this out quick if, if I'm going to like be successful at this. But I never really had the the desire to like actually be a short game coach. I was just playing so poorly, and then I was just sort of like, "What am I doing with my time?" And I, I started making these short game videos, and then all of a sudden, um, Strelman reaches out and he's like, "Hey, I want you to take a look at my short game." And I'm like, "All right." And he got better, and then did it again, and he got better, and he's like, "Well, I think I'd like to have you on staff for the year." And I was like, "All right, I sure, like let's go." Yeah. Um, but I had no real desire. I was never like, oh, I need to get on tour and I need to teach and whatever. It just sort of all happened word of mouth. And even to this day, I've never once promoted on my Instagram like, hey, I'm open for lessons. Like, come see me. Never once. But I'm I'm like crazy busy. And it's, and it's you know, if you want to come and see me, it's like probably between travel and being booked. It's like I'm probably a month and a half or two months out of like trying to get in. So it's just sort of evolved. But as far as like me knowing when I was good at it, my parents were both, my dad was a, a great coach, um, basketball and volleyball. And, um, and he was a good communicator. He was, he was on TV, still, still is on TV, you know, commentating, uh, men's and women's volleyball in Hawaii. And he was always a great communicator. And so for me, I always felt like I was a fairly good communicator. And I think that, uh, that, that was something that, potentially with the knowledge that I had about the short game and the, the way I was able to communicate, I think it was a, it was a nice blend and I think it, it just sort of evolved over time, but that, that was sort of the blend that I feel like. And, and I think that the X factor of it is that I struggled with basically having the driver yips. Mm -hmm. And so now when someone came to see me and they had the short game yips, the chipping yips, I was able to empathize and be like, yeah, I understand what that feels like. I've been there. I get it. I empathize. And, and it's not just sort of like I'm up on a pedestal and you're down here as a coach and a client. It, it was very much like eye to eye. And I think that's, that's a lot of the feedback that I've gotten from people is like your empathy is what, is what draws us closer to you and, and makes us really, um, 
embrace what it is that you're saying. Obviously, the information is good, but your empathy and the way you communicate, those are kind of the other things that are that are really um, maybe help take me from an okay coach to like a really great coach. Is this something that you see doing long term? I don't. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the business itself has been has been very very good, and it's taken me from trying to play on the PGA Tour to then, you know, coaching and being like, well, there's a real business here, um, and there's a real desire for people to get good information. Um, you know, the weekend warrior that plays once a week or once a month you know, he, he wants something that's going to be efficient and something that's going to be, um, something that he doesn't have to practice all the time. He wants something that, boy, golf is hard enough as it is. Help me stack the odds in my favor so that I can hit this chip shot bad and it still turn out pretty good and bunker shot and rough shot and putting and all, all, all of the things help me, help me make a mistake and still hit it within that six to 10 foot circle. And that's, that's where I feel like I've, I've really helped people. Um, as far as a long-term plan, yeah, I mean, I'd like to do this. I'm 44 right now. I'd like to do this for another five years, build this business up. And then and then hopefully it, it's running itself. And maybe there's some some sous chefs that are helping me run it right. as well. And, I, and, then, and then, you know, if I've got the desire to be able to have the chance to go play on the Champions Tour. Yeah. Interesting. Champions Tour. So that's something that you've that you've actually been thinking about. Yeah, like I'm a competitor at heart. Yeah. Like I've, I'm I'm always going to be a competitor. I've been a competitor my whole life, and I love to compete. But when you're playing crappy golf, it's not that fun to compete. And so I feel like I've started to find some some good things in my golf game, but I just haven't practiced much. Um, it's got to be do. difficult, like because you have so many guys vying for your time. It's got to be tough to keep your game sharp when. <laughs> Yeah. When you're helping others out and you don't have enough time to dedicate to your own game. Yeah. A hundred percent. And and if I'm, if I'm at the golf course teaching for six, seven hours, it's like, the last thing I want to do is go then practice my own stuff. Like I got kids, I, I got to get them to their own practices as well. So, uh, you know, my window is sort of like nine to three to be able to either work on my own game or help other people. And I've been so much in demand that it's been not work on my own game. It's been help yeah. other people. So you're used to imparting wisdom on, on golfers and some of those names you mentioned, uh, Keith Mitchell, Colin Morikawa, Joel Damon, uh, Bill Hostler. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, some, some really good players, but I want to know what, what's the one thing that you've learned from them mm. during your time working on, on short game with, with some of the best players in the world. That it's, it's, it's never that far. They're never that far off. Um, and, and, and I always have to remind myself like how good these guys are. And so it's never, it's never an overhaul. It's never one of those things where I'm like, hey, all right, we're going to like completely overhaul this. It's like, dude, you're on the PGA tour. You've won on the, you've won majors, right? It's like, I always, no matter how poorly those, they speak like, oh, my, my chipping has been so terrible lately, whatever. It's like, they're only this far away or like one really good tip away from chipping it better than anybody on the planet. And so to me, it's like, it's always keeping that in perspective and realizing that these players are that great. And it's like, all I need to do is find that one root cause as to what may be feeling a little bit off. And if I can tweak that one root cause, they're off to the races and they feel like they can beat anybody. It, I, I want to mention this because you're, a guy who everybody knows as a short game guru, whisper, whatever you want to call it. But you had you set you had a PGA Tour record, three hundred fifty four consecutive holes, without a three putt. Like you're you're a damn good putter, dude. And it makes me wonder, like what what is more difficult to to maintain for a tour pro? Is it more difficult to maintain the the short game, like keeping that in a good spot, or or keeping the putting? in a really good spot. I would say it's, it's probably the putting. I think because putting, you have such high expectations. You think you're going to make everything inside of 10 feet. That's what the PGA tour players think. Obviously the, the stats don't show that, but if you're chipping and bunkering, you, you, you understand like, okay, well the lie may not be that good. My goal is to maybe get this within a four or five foot circle. I'm in the rough lies. Not very good. I, it's unpredictable as to how it's going to come out. So your expectations go down. Bunker, same thing. Uh, it's plugged in the bunker. So 
your expectations go down. You expect to get it. All right, just get it in a six, seven foot circle. That's fine. I'll make that putt. But when you're on the greens and the greens are perfect and they're nice and they're rolled and they're all, they're all uniform, you're expecting to make a lot more putts. And so when you start missing putts, which again, greens are imperfect too, but tour players think that the greens are perfect and I've got the read perfect and I hit the right speed, it should go in. And when it doesn't, you start to question whether it's your willpower, whether it's your stroke, whether it's your aim, whether it's your read, whether it's your speed, you start to question all those things. Putting can kind of go away uh, a little bit quicker than I think short game can uh, because it, there's just a lot of things that you start to question because you think you should make every putt. And to me, it, it always, I think you always sort of forget about what it is that like someone like Tiger did so well, which was he almost willed the ball in the hole, right? It felt like it so many times during his career. He blended a perfect stroke with like massive willpower, massive like mental visualization. Like him, he was seeing it go in. He had already made putts before he even walked in. Like he had already made them in his mind. And so I think that part of it gets a bit forgotten about. And that's where I felt like I was really good. I felt like, you know, I can't hang with Tiger on his driver and irons and wedges. And, but I felt like on the, on the greens, I felt like I was his equal. Um, and that was just, you know, me thinking that was sort of my superpower when I was playing, I was great at short game, but I was, I was, that was my superpower was putting and, and making putts that most people couldn't make. Um, but I did that through a great routine and I did it through willpower. And like, I mean, like I, I felt like when I was in my prime, like I was walking up to a green and I was stalking the putt from like 80 yards away, like walking up, like I'm looking at every angle and I'm stalking this putt. And so I would spend a lot of emotional energy on trying to make every single putt. And so I'd go through rounds and I'd be like, yeah, I hit eight greens, but I shot four under. And that was like a normal day for me. Like that was, cr that was the crazy part about it. So the Ryder Cup's less than two weeks out and you mentioned you don't spend every week with your guys, but I'm curious with with the tour schedule changing and a lot of the big names I'm talking about, Colin Morikawa in this case, not really playing tune-up events as much leading up to it. Do you do any sort of work with him or have you done any sort of like fine tuning, just getting him ready or is he pretty much like good to go right now for, for Rome? Yeah, no, I, I, I worked with Colin this, this off season and I think the last time we kind of worked together was sort of like mid February. Um, and you know, I think, I think he got quite a bit, um, like foundationally out of what we did. Um, and, and I always say, I'm like, look, my, my relate, my relationship shouldn't be like for a lifetime with you guys, as far as like making sure that everything is in the right spot. Like it, you guys should be able to own it. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know where he is as far as what he's working on right now. Um, but I know that I, I gave him a, a good foundation for him to then be creative off of that, like really solid foundation. And I think that's, that's one of the things that, um, that I do really well is that I, I'm able to like a guy like Keith, it's like give him his foundation and then let him be creative off of that. So Keith calls it his sort of vanilla pitch shot. And he's like, okay, I've got this. And I hit this 85% of the time off of a tight fairway lie. Well then Sometimes it's going to be club face open, longer backswing. Other times it's going to be shorter follow through. Other times it's going to be a square face. There's a lot of variations that sort of go into, into it, but uh, the foundation is sort of always going to be there. And then the player is allowed to be creative outside of that. Um, but I, yeah, I would say, I would say as far as, as far as the, um, as far as the guys prepping for Rome, I think it's like, it's interesting to watch a JT play in Napa. Like, I think yeah. like, I mean, I think yesterday was probably one of those rounds where he probably felt more nervous than he probably has in the past because it's like, all right, you got to validate the fact that you're a captain's pick and he hasn't been playing great golf and he's putting up stuff on Instagram of him with all these different al alignment sticks and noodles and, and all this stuff. He's trying like, out a longer driver this week. I mean, all like it's all, it all sort of lends itself to being like, you better perform, right? Because there's a lot of pressure on you. And, and, you know, I think, and I think he did, I think he played, I probably played pretty well. I saw him through like maybe nine, he was a couple under, but you know, it looked like he played pretty well considering all that pressure, but 
uh, you know, a guy like Max, you know, I know, I know all these guys, they're all going to be feeling like more pressure than they've ever felt, especially the rookies, uh, and, and going overseas into a sort of a hostile environment. They're going to be feeling tons of pressure, but their job is going to be, how do I treat this like any other week? How do I treat it like a Tuesday at Whisper Rock is what a lot of the guys say, right? How do I treat it like a Tuesday at Whisper Rock? And if you can do that, you're going to have success. So I've been burying the lead here, but you do have, I, I'm going to say one of the best Instagram handles out there. <laughs> Short Game Chef, man. Where, I want to know where, where the heck did the name come from? Oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So uh, this caddy friend of mine uh, that caddy for me a lot, uh, he was like, man, your short game is so good. There's a space for you to do something on like an Instagram and give tips and stuff like that. I'm like, dude, I'm not even on Instagram. He's like, I'll help you set it up. I'll film the videos for you. Just do it. So we filmed these like dozen videos and he's like, okay, now you got to come up with a name. I was like, it's not just going to be my name. <laughs> he's like, no, come up with like a, like an interesting name. And I was like, huh? All right. Well, my first thought was like, I, I loved, uh, Joe Mayo. His, his, his handle was Trackman Maestro on, on uh, Twitter. And I always thought like, that was really cool. Like Trackman Maestro, like that's a good name. And I was like, well, I was like, it's got to be something to do with short games so that people know what they're coming for. It's going to be that specific. That's what my page is going to be. It's not going to be about me. It's not going to be about, you know, it's not going to be about my kids or my, you know, whatever. It's going to be about short game. People are going to come there for good information on short game. So it's got to have something to do with short game. And then I was like, hmm, short game what? Short game wizard, short game genius, short game guru, short game whisperer. It's like, ah, it's all kind of like generic. I was like, uh, you know, and then I was like, short game chef. I was like, hmm. Every shot around the green has some type of ingredient. You know, okay, you got to open the face. That's one ingredient. Okay, you got to have a long backswing. That's another ingredient. Okay, this is how I want you to release it. Okay, maybe that's like a recipe. Okay, put it all together and now it's a recipe. And it's like, oh man, every shot around the green, there's some type of a recipe. And in that recipe, there's certain ingredients. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I think this is the one. And then it's such a great name. <laughs> like it, it, it fits you because you're right. Like you have all these different recipes and you share them. But yeah, every wedge shot is not the same. You've got to make little manipulations. Yeah. Where, whereas like, you know, it's like if you're hitting an iron shot, there's so many more stock iron shots, right? It's like, okay, it's just a stock eight iron. Yep. Well, you wouldn't be like a, a, a iron. I mean, Iron Chef is actually a good name, right? But. You wouldn't be like a long iron. It was chef. a it was a TV show <laughs> a TV on show, yeah. on uh, the food on the food network. <laughs> I used to watch it, Iron <laughs> Chef. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, short game chef. And then I and then once I once I did that, it was like people were like, dude, best name on best name on Instagram. And then ever since then, it's been like people are like, God, that was such a genius name. There's so many puns and plays off of that. Yep. And so it's like now, in, even in my thought process, it's like all right, well, I'm going to make a cookbook. Like there's going to be, I'm going to have like a coffee table cookbook. You'll be the first to Such get Such a it. great idea. And so, and, the, and inside of the, it'll be like a cookbook that's going to be like super nice on the outside. Yeah, you know, yeah. you'll have no idea it has anything to do with golf, right? Your wife will be like, yes, let's put that out. It's yeah, cool yeah. looking. But then on the inside, you'd be like, oh shit, there's some cool recipes, right? right? right. There's great recipes here. And, and it will have like cool photos and in more of an artsy kind of a way. It'll be like a golf book that's, it's never it. been the golf instructional book that's never been done, but you'll be able to sneak it on the coffee table so that your wife won't be mad at you. I love that. When, when did you start to notice that your Instagram account was starting to like pick up steam? Part of it was, was actually due to your article, um, about flight lines. That was, that was definitely one of, one of the big bumps. Um, that, that for sure. I mean, I, I want to say it was, there was almost like seven to 15,000 increase with with the wow. article that you that you put out um so that thing that thing was kind of put me on the map a bit um that was probably one of the biggest one of the biggest moments was that that article as far as like my instagram growth um but yeah it, it's it's been it's been wild it's, it's like i never spent any money on it like as far as like promoting it or trying to get more followers or boosting stuff. I never spent any money. You're trying to help golfers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then it just sort of organically grew. And then, and then articles like that really helped. And then, you know, doing stuff in golf magazine or golf.com, like all that stuff helps. Um, but yeah, I think, I think also, you know, it helped probably this past January and February 
call in saying that you know he was working with me during the tournament of champions at in Maui. That was a big boost. Colin also talking about me at Riviera was a big boost. Uh, walking down the fairway and talking on ten, and then Keith Mitchell was was a huge a huge boost as well. They had a rain delay at Pebble, and Keith was in like second, and he just pulled off like maybe four or five of the most incredible short game shots in the front nine of Pebble playing with Josh Allen in kind of one of the featured groups and in tied for lead second place. And then they had a, a rain, a rain delay, weather delay. And they were like, Hey, what's going so right for you? And he was like, I've been working with Parker McLaughlin for the yeah. last year and a half. And my short game's just been like phenomenal. And I've been getting up and down from everywhere. So to say that on national TV was a huge boost for, for me as well. And so a, a lot of things kind of combined, but, you know, again, I, I was I was trying to give people good information. And then on top of trying to give people good information, I was trying to make the Instagram like I was trying to bring sexy back to the short game. Bryson had made the long ball like very appetizing and everybody was falling in love with the long ball, how to get more speed, how to get more, how to hit bombs. And then I was like, you know what? Short game's not getting any love. And so I was trying to lead the charge of like, let's make the short game sexy again. Yeah. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna tell a quick story here. Uh, a few years back, I was told that Parker had an idea, and you know I I people tell me this all the time. They're like, "Hey, this guy's got a really cool idea for gear, or a visual aid, or it's like something that you need to hear about." And I'm like, "All right, all right, cool." So we we meet up. It was in the parking lot, I think, at at, at TrueSpec, yeah. and you pull out this wedge and you're walking me through your flight lines, which is what they're now called. And we'll get in more to that here in a second. But I remember there's, there's been a couple of times in, in my career where I've looked at, I've looked at a design or an idea and I've thought, holy shit, why didn't I think about that <laughs> one? And this was one of those, man, like what, what, where did this idea come from? From for the flight lines, I know it's now on on Vokey wedges. You you can get it as an add on through the WedgeWorks program, but like take me back to when it very first started. Like, what was the impetus behind wanting to add these lines to the hosel? It was it was a total COVID invention. I was stuck. In a lot the of inventions came from COVID. Yeah, <laughs> I was stuck in the house, and I was you know. Obviously, I just sort of began diving into short game like maybe a year earlier. And so March of 2023, March, April of 2020, 2020, March, April of 2020. And I I was kept looking at my all my tour players at setup looked pretty similar for a, a, a flop shot or a bunker shot, a pitch shot and a bump and run. They all looked pretty close to the same. And then I started looking at my amateurs and I had started to, by word of mouth, started to see more amateurs and they were coming to see me and, and I was helping them, a lot of them out of the chipping yips. And I started looking at these guys at setup and I'm like, well, they're so different than what my pros look like. And I was like, man, if I can take my amateur golfer and make them look like my tour player at setup, I'm like 85% of the way there to helping them with that particular shot. And so I thought, boy, what if I could give them some kind of visual aid? Uh, and so like the Seymour putter, to me, like Shaflin was such a big thing in, in, um, in wedge play that wasn't really talked about. So like leaning the shaft forward or backward in the bunker made a big difference. Forward or, or backwards in the rough or out of the fairway, it made a big difference as to how players, especially amateur players, responded. And so if I could help these amateur players put the shaft position and the club face position in the right spot at setup for bunker shot slash flop shot, pitch shot and a bump and run. I was like, wow, if I could do that, these people are like, they're, they're more than halfway there to solving their issues around the greens. And so I, I anyway, I just remember being like, okay, I'm going to set up to a, you know, I was in my kitchen and I was setting up to it and I had my, my wife grab a ruler and a Sharpie. And I said, okay, this is where I want it for a flop shot or a bunker shot. And then she would have that ruler perfect. And I'd look down and she would draw that line and I'd twist the club face and put the shaft maybe a little bit more forward. 
And then I had another one for a pitch shot. And then I would lean it much more forward. And then I had another line for a bump and run. And I, I put the three lines on there. And I was like, oh my God, is, is, has nobody done this before? Um, I'm sure you probably went to go look and see. If, I did. If, yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah. And, um, and there really wasn't, there really wasn't anything that was, uh, like this out there to help people with their short games. And then I called Jason Gore at the USGA and I was like, Hey Gore, I got an idea. <laughs> he's like, I'll put you in touch with the right guy. I FaceTime with the guy and he's like, and then he texted me a picture back of the rule book. And it says alignment lines on the hosel are legal for tournament play. And I'm like, so it's actually written in the rule. I like, I don't have to apply for it to be yeah. written in the rule book. It's like, no, it's it, you're good. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I think I actually have something here. And that's where it really sort of started, um, you know, during COVID. And you, you talk, I remember you telling me that you kind of showed Voke and, and Aaron Dill where the lines were and that sort of matched up with what, like how Voke would play yep. the wedge in those certain positions. So I'm sure there's a little bit of validation there too. I mean, you're, you're an incredible short game player in your own right, but then to have Voke go, yeah, it's, that actually was the way that I'd play it as well. Yep. Yep. And, and I think that that was, that was fun for me to see and, and to share it with Vogue, share with Aaron Dill and Corey Gerard over at title. Actually, Corey wasn't in that first meeting, but afterwards I was able to share it with Corey, but, um, but to, to get Vogue's, you know, take on it and say, Hey Vogue, I've got a line here and this is where I think the face should be for a bunker shot. This is where I think the shaft should be. And he's like, I'm a hundred percent on board. That looks great. And then to show him a pitch shot and a bump and run, and he's like, "I actually, I've, I've measured a bump and run. The, the tour players between, you know, between three and seven degrees of shaft lean forward for a bump and run." And I was like, "Well, I had the, I had the my flight line at five degrees of shaft lean forward." He's like, "I'm good with it." <laughs> so it was nice. It was nice validation because he's been preaching, "Hey, I want you guys to use the bounce. I want you to feel like." like the club is coming into the ball with some neutrality at impact. And so if you're going to hit a pitch shot and the swing is going to be from here to here back to through, I don't want you leaning the shaft, you know, 20 degrees forward at address, because if you're going to do that, you've got to do something to start to engage the bounce on the at impact. And so he liked, you know, starting the shaft in a spot and in a neutral spot where you could return it back to that spot to help engage the bounce. And, and really, you know, I always call it, th these lines are sort of your, your, your driving manual mm -hmm. as far as how you're supposed to use your Vokey wedge. That, that's, what, that's what it's really there for, is to give you, hey, all right, you just bought this Ferrari. How, do, how am I supposed to use this thing, right? Oh, here's your driving manual. This is how you're supposed to use the clutch and use the gears and accelerate and all that stuff. Th these are there to help you use this this wedge to its full effect what's the feedback been like that you've received since flight lines came out yeah it's been it's been cool we've had like multiple thousands of people that have reached out um and and used it and got it and and i've had at least five that have reached out to me and said flight lines has cured my chipping hips i didn't realize wow i didn't realize how far forward my hands were at address and now I have a good checkpoint before setup and I'm good to go and chipping yips have been gone. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, like just the fact that there's like more than just the fact that there's like more than one, I was like, holy cow. So like we've had at least five, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but for sure at least five. And I try to post some of these when people send me these, like, you know, they're just randomly send them to me on Instagram. They'll just say like, Hey, just want to let you know, flight lines has changed my life. And it's like, wow, that's really cool. Like just something that I came up with you know, with a sh couple Sharpie, yeah. <laughs> Sharpie marks. And like, all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, it makes sense. And it really helps people. So you came up with a really kick-ass idea, which then makes me wonder what's, what's next. Is there, is there like a follow-up for flight lines? Do you, do you see it? Like, is there an evolution? Like what, what else do you have cooking? Yeah. So, um, flight lines has done really well. And, uh, the people at, at Titleist have been, uh, been great and, and they're excited about sort of the next generation of flight lines. And so they're turning on an option here um, in the very near future to be able to actually customize your flight lines even more and to be able to throw different colors on them. Previously, it was white or black. Sometimes th those got a little bit difficult to see in certain sunlights and certain certain uh, finishes. 
So now you can customize them in red, blue. That blue right here on this dark finish. I know this is a podcast, but it's going to come out in video form too. <laughs> but you can see, I mean, it really pops against that black. Yeah. And so it, it'll be it'll be something where people can, you know, customizing wedges really allows you to showcase your personality a bit more. And, you know, you can customize the back of the wedge. Now we're giving you the option to customize on the hosel. And, and to me, it's like, it's, it's just really cool that Titleist is embracing it. Vokey's embracing it. And we're stepping up our game and, and allowing you to customize it with different colors now. You are a tour pro. You spent a lot of time out on tour. I got to ask you this question. What yeah. are your thoughts on the USGA's proposed golf ball rollback? Oh man. I just feel like it's going in the wrong direction. I, I feel like there's gotta be other options other than making tour players play a different golf ball. Like I think that's one of the neat things about our sport is that you and I can play the same golf ball. Um, I think that, you know, driver heads have gone like so big that, um, you know, there's, there's no real huge, uh, penalty for miss hitting a driver these days. You know, you can, some of the, you can swing really as hard as you want and you're like, eh, it's still going to kind of go where I'm looking. Whereas back in the day, it was like, there was always, you know, even a guy like couples or a guy like Davis love when they were playing persimmon, it's like, those guys swung it hard but they were still only going like 85, 90%. Yeah. You look at some of these guys today and it's like, guys are going at it really hard. And now they're dialing it back a little bit if they want some accuracy, but they're not as afraid of the big miss as guys back in like the persimmon days were afraid of the big miss. Yeah. Now that was a combination of like the size of the head and also a golf ball that spun a lot more. So it's a combination. I think if you if you if you just made the golf ball spin a bunch more, mm -hmm. potentially you would you would get guys that would not hit it quite as far, but guys would still figure out how to optimize it. That's the thing; these guys are so good, they always find an edge. I mean, there's always going to be a Bryson out there who's going to ask the questions and and try and find ways to to. I want, I don't want to say game the system, but you know, that's, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to find a way to, to get an edge on his competition. So if you took, if you took the golf tee away, right. If you just couldn't put the ball on a tee, go Laura Davies style. Yeah. I mean, guys would still, that's interesting. guys would still probably figure it out. Um, but if you took the tee away, now you can't really hit as much up on the ball, right? You can't get those optimal launch conditions. You're hitting way lower on the face. Ball is going to be spinning a lot more. You know, you're probably taking you're probably taking away 30 yards, I would guess, if you can't use the tee. But guys would, you know, guys would figure out a way to do it. I, I've when I like I said, when I had the driver yips and I was hitting it like this and this, 50 left and 90 right, I would throw the ball on the deck. And I finally, I, I had some so much success with playing it off the deck. I played a mini tour event, um, and I shot 62 without using a tee for the whole round. Pepsi <laughs> tour event. Oh yeah. my gosh! I just threw it on the deck. <laughs> And the guy that I How played long did that last? How long were you playing it off? Oh, the I, I played like that for like a year. Um, I was trying to play mini tours and no all this way. stuff. No way. But wow. I, couldn't, I couldn't hit it as far. So certain courses, it would, it would be okay. okay. But I, would, I was giving up 20, 20 to 25 yards. Yeah. Um, but I, my accuracy was better, and that's the thing that I was struggling with. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's a lot of ways to do it. I just don't think that golf ball rollback is, 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 the, is the right way. What's your take on the current state of wedge technology? I feel like there's probably I feel like there's probably a lot of exploration still yet to be done. I love that you say that because I feel like there's so many like untapped ideas in the wedge space that yeah. haven't been unearthed yet. I really do too. Um and I and I don't know what those are. I I I I don't claim to have all the answers, but um I do feel like there are there, there is a lot of room for growth in that space. And, and again, you know, the driver for a long time was the point of emphasis. It was, it was the sexiest club. Everybody's trying to get the newest, the newest gear. Right. And TaylorMade at one point was coming out with a driver every six months. It seemed like, right. Yeah. So a lot of emphasis was put on that. Uh, wedges sort of got forgotten about, um, by most of the companies. And I think that, you know, I think that now people are starting to pay more attention to the short game. I think it's become a bit more in vogue. Um, and I think in that fashion, I think that, I think that you will start to see in the near future. I think 
golf club companies will start to push the push the limits, push the boundaries of what the soul looks like. They're gonna. I think that I think that guy uh, wedge companies are gonna start to push push the envelope on on what the soul looks like, on where the center of gravity is. Um, you know, we we've seen it with with the the millings and the and the grooves all the way out to the toe. Um, so I think, I think that there's, there's definitely more technology to be explored in the wedge space. Uh, I'm excited. I think it's, I think it's sort of like still like the wild, wild west with, with, with wedges and, and the whole, yeah, I just, I just think that there's, there's a lot to be done with it. What's the biggest difference between pros and amateurs when it comes to how they approach the short game? Um, I think the pros the pros stack the odds in their favor. The amateur tries to hit the shot that they see on TV. And the shot that they see on TV is the one that's the highlight reel from a Phil Mickelson or somebody like that, where it's like they've only got three yards to work with and they've got to go over a bunker and they're in a difficult spot and they hit this miraculous shot to two feet. And the amateur thinks that that is the shot that they should, that the amateur should play from everywhere around the green. And it's like, there's got, there's got to be like the shot that you can play. That's sort of your stock standard shot. Okay. This is what I'm going to try and do. And this is how I'm going to stack the odds in my favor. I just think golf is so darn hard that it's like, you, you got to try and find ways to stack the odds in your favor. You got to allow the balance to be your friend. And if you can start to understand ways of doing that, you can start to lower your scores and take those double bogeys and turn them into, into bogeys or pars, actually. This is just an observation, but whenever I go to the golf course, it, it's like everybody is on the range pounding balls and there's, you know, a handful of guys on the putting green and nobody really around the short game area. Yep. Like, wh why do so many amateurs deprioritize the short game? Like what, is it just because it takes time to learn those shots and nobody wants to spend the hours just, getting shots around, uh, out of the bunker or around a green, like what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think it, it, it's a variety of factors. I think part of it is just not enough time in the day for you to practice your driver, which is important and probably the, the thing that your buddies will be most impressed with. Um, it doesn't necessarily help your score quite as much as I think your short game, improving your short game would help your score. Um, I think, I think for, the amateur player, I think sometimes it's a little bit daunting to go over to a short game area. And I think a lot of amateurs uh, are deathly afraid of ground interaction, turf interaction in a, in a negative sense. They're, they're afraid of uh, bad turf interaction. And to me, that's, that's where I've tried to sort of shed more light on like, hey, I want you to like embrace your turf interaction, but do it in the proper way. And so, um, to me, it's, it's, it's once you start to embrace that turf interaction, like we've got a, a bunch of people on our, on our, on our membership website, on our discord server, that's associated with that membership website. They're on there. They're just like, they're posting their practice and they're just like, yeah, I had a great day practicing. And it's like, once you start to understand and appreciate and, and embrace the, the turf interaction, some of the fear and anxiety of going to a chipping area goes away. And that's, that's the whole thing. It's like you start getting, you start getting some chunks. What's going to show up next? The blades. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, I, I, I try to help people eliminate the chunks. And the second that you can start eliminating the chunks, the blades will start to slowly go away as well. From the amateur golfers you've worked with, what's the one wedge shot that they come in thinking that they know how to hit, but you like quickly learn that a lot of amateur golfers just do not know how to properly hit like this particular wedge shot. I would say, I would say the flop shot is potentially the one that amateurs, um, they want to hit. They think they know how to hit. Um, I, I give them a couple of options. I call one a, a risky flop shot, which is sort of the one they see on TV. Uh, and then the other one's more of a reliable flop shot. The risky one, you know, it works. If you're a great player, it works you know, one out of two times. Uh, and if you're not a great player or if you're, you know, you struggle or you don't have as much um, time to practice, 
it works one out of 10 times. Um, but the, the reliable flop shot to me uh, gives you the same access to maybe a little bit less, but the, the, pretty close to the same access to height and softness. But it gives you much better turf interaction, much better consistency. And it, it, allows, it allows you to be more successful more often. So probably closer to six or seven out of 10 times versus the one out of 10. So that ties in perfectly with my next question, which like, what are your thoughts on mid to high handicappers carrying a 60 degree wedge? I actually answered that question on our discord this morning. Like literally <laughs> as I was I feel like, it's probably a really common yeah. question because it is, it is a pretty terrifying club. Like when you set it down and you've got that wide open face and you see that leading edge start to get a little bit more engaged and yep. yeah. Well, and actually the question was about a 64 degree, um, this morning. Oh, so yeah. like the Phil Mickelson style. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Someone was like, Hey, what, you know, I've got this 64 and uh, you know, how much should I rely on it and all this stuff. And it's like, there's, there's a, a handful of factors that go into, you know, gapping, but also into like, why do you need this club? And so if you, it, my answer was to this person was if you don't hit the ball, off the tee longer than 270 yards, there's no reason for you to have anything more than a 60 degree. And I, if you probably hit it like 240, I'd probably want you to have a 58 as your highest lofted wedge. So people are always asking like, hey, where do I start? Like whatever, you know, and it's like, how far do you hit the ball, first of all? Because that, that's, that's an important factor as far as like how we're gonna back into where your highest lofted wedge should be. That's interesting, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, yeah. Yeah, because I think if you if you hit it short, like you're going to want a lot more longer clubs, right? If you hit it 220 as your max, you're going to want a lot more hybrids. You're not going to necessarily want 64 degrees. Preach, man. I love I love <laughs> that you're saying this. Keep going, but so I always start if, if people are like, "Hey, you know, I'm, I'm looking to get my new 60 degree, like what should I get?" And I'm like, "Well, let's start with how far do you actually hit the ball off the tee? What's your club head speed? What's your ball speed?" Because if we can start there, well, you may not need a 60. You might want a 58 or a 57. Maybe even a 56 is your highest lofted wedge because you're going to want to stack your, your clubs as far as like, I need to hit this thing further. Further is going to be my friend. So maybe you go down to a driver that's like seven degrees and you learn to hit up on it a little bit more to get you more distance. And then now you're going to have a 13 degree, 12 or 13 degree, maybe a mini driver, maybe a, uh, a, a two or a three wood, right? That's strong. Now you're going to want to have like a five wood that's maybe on the stronger side. Now you're going to want to have a, a hybrid two iron or a driving iron. And then you're going to want to have a, a strong four iron or a hybrid four iron. But you stack this, you know, sort of the, the high end si side of your, of your set. It leaves less room for, for the wedges. Now, I think that that's probably a good thing for a person that struggles hitting it far because that's where your weakness is. Your weakness is not enough length. So you need to address that first. If you can address that, then we can start to get into the wedges. But I think that once you once you figure out the the length part, then we'll start working on the wedges and being like, okay, now you can go up to a 58 degree and then maybe you'll go 58 and a 53 and then a 53 down to a 48 or 47. And now you've only got three wedges and you can stack more on the on the high end side of the, of the irons and the five woods and the forwards and all that stuff. I hope people out there are listening to this and just like clip what Parker just said and just like save that soundbite because it does feel like a lot of golfers just pick like a stock wedge setup, you know, it's like 52, 56, 60, and they never even consider like the top end. If you're shorter, like focus on, on that area. I, I just, I love that you said that. Okay. Wedge shot that more golfers need to add to their arsenal. Which one would you say is, is I would say, I would say like 30 to 60, 30 to 70 yards is a really awkward yardage for most of my amateurs. And so adding that, having a stock shot for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, that's really important. Understanding like an understanding and owning your trajectory and understanding and owning your landing spot. So understanding, okay, this ball is going to fly 30 yards. This is going to fly 40. I think that's probably one of the biggest things with amateurs that they they'll step over a 30 yard shot and carry it 45 or hit it 15. And, and that discrepancy costs them shots every single time. So 
I would say the 30 to 70 yards is, is like a huge area for amateurs to improve. Because you are such a good putter, and there are a lot of golfers out there who are listening who are not, for those that struggle with three putts, what's the one suggestion, tip that you'd give them to help lower their, their three putts? I'd say, I think it's twofold. Uh, number one is become and like really, really practice hard from two to six feet. Really practice hard. I'm talking like spend most of your time. I know it's, it's not the most fun, but spend most of your time from two to six feet doing like a north, south, east, west drill, three tees from two, three, four feet uh, on, on each north, south, east, west. Own that, then go three, four, five feet, then go four, five, six feet. Uh, if you can accomplish all of those, it'll probably take you, what would that be? Probably like 50 putts, 60 putts, something like that. But if you can hit 60 putts and do the, do those like three drills, uh, you're you're going to own inside of six feet. Now, once you own inside of six feet, that's freeing to your mind. Right. So you're not feeling like, oh, I got to hit this within like a one foot circle because that's where my friends will give it to me or that's the one I know I can make. If you are owning inside of six feet, now all of a sudden you're like, okay, I just got to get it somewhere in this sort of six foot circle. I know I'm going to make the next one. That ownership allows you the freedom to make a better stroke. Second portion of it, right after you own this first part, the second portion of it is distance control. And so distance control, like there's one drill that I really love, which would be, you know, putting, putting a, putting a golf club down 18 inches behind the hole and then starting at 10 feet and going every five feet back. So 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, you got seven balls there and you try to get it to the hole and not hit the club behind the hole. That's the goal. So you try to fit it in that little, if you make it great. But as long as you get it past the front edge of the hole and not hitting the shaft behind the hole, that's a win. And you get to move on to the next. You go 10 feet, then to 15 feet, then all I'm the way I'm going to try back. this when I get home. And so, and it, it doesn't, and then all of a sudden you're not really worried about like your line, right? You, I don't care if you miss it two feet left or three feet left or three feet right. It doesn't matter. Your speed control is what matters. And you know that you can miss, you know that you can miss that three feet away because you know now you're good at three footers, four footers, five footers. So between those two things, that should be able to solve the three putt sort of mystery for people. Um, I'd say if I'm going to throw in a third thing, it's like right here. Like how much willpower, how much heart yeah. do you have? Do you step over that five footer and be like, this is the last putt that I ever get to hit in my life. I got to make this putt. Mm. Do you step in there with that type of intensity? Probably not. Probably Probably don't step in with that type of intensity. But if you did, I guarantee you'd make more putts because you'd just be like, yes, this putt is going in. If it's the last thing I ever get to do in my life, this putt is going in. How often do you walk in like that? You probably don't, right? Because you just, you know, you're playing weekend golf and you're maybe having a couple drinks and you got music going and, oh, the cart girl just pulled up. Let me just hit this five, five footer and, oh, I miss it. Yep, another three putt. It's like, why don't you just take 12 extra seconds and be like, I see it. I believe in it. I'm, I, I know that this is going in. I'm using my cha I'm channeling my willpower and this, this ball is going in the hole. I can visualize it. I see it already at the bottom of the cup. That's how you, that's how you go 354 holes without a three putt in yeah. a row, <laughs> but it takes some mental, emotional energy, right? Which not all of us are willing to give. And even now when I play casual rounds of golf, it's like, I find myself like missing six footers. I'm like, uh, that's it's tough part. to stay engaged. Yeah. I feel like for an entire round, which is like 354 consecutive holes without a three putt on the PGA tour, not just like <laughs> yeah. casual rounds of golf is just truly insane. But like for you to be able to stay engaged and like for every one of those putts yeah. is just like the, the average golfer just doesn't have it in them. Cause you're right. You know, they're outside influences. You're playing with your buddies, cart girl, you know, whatever's going on and you just lose focus. And, yeah. Yeah. So I w yeah, I would just say it doesn't take that much focus, right? But it does take you just giving it that extra five, six, seven seconds, like right before you walk into the ball, just st stand behind it or kneel behind it, whatever it is, and just see that ball going in. Just see if you can engage your mind to, to get your visualization to see this ball falling in over 
the front edge or hitting the back of the cup or falling in the left edge or falling in the right edge, whatever it is, see if you can just see it start going in. If you can do that and just, again, it really only takes four, five, six, seven seconds of good focus concentration. If you can do that, you'll make more putts, especially inside of that eight foot range. You'll make way more putts. Okay. A couple more for you. A uh, question that I usually get a lot is on bounce, wedge bounce. And golfers always want to know, like, am I using the right amount of bounce? When should I have a high bounce wedge versus a low bounce wedge? You've spent a lot of time around the, the pros. You, you know kind of how they operate. You've spent a lot of time around amateur golfers. Like, what's your take on, on high bounce versus low bounce? What kind of golfer fits yeah, you know, it's, such a, it's such a, it's such an in-depth kind of a question. Um, I know it's a simple question, but it's also like a, it's a very in-depth answer. Um, I've seen, I've done some like testing with some amateurs and I've just said, don't even look, let me just give you a wedge and I'll, and, and I'll have a really good player. Um, scratch golfer sets up to a T grind with no bounce, you know, four degrees of bounce on it. And he's like, Oh, this thing is so sexy. It looks so good sitting on the ground. The leading edge is very low to the ground. It looks awesome in his eyes. He'll hit little knuckleball, little knuckleball, little knuckleball, no spin. Uh, and then I'll give him something that has more bounce. I actually gave this particular player a 14 degree K grind. And he's like, I don't like the way this looks sitting on the ground. I'm like, all right, just, just hit it. Right. He didn't know that it was a K grind, but he's just like, I don't, I don't love the way this looks sitting on the ground. Sure enough, this ball comes out this high spinning. And it just went shot after shot after shot. And he just all of a sudden was like hitting these like low spinning 20 yard shots. And he's like, what in the world? And I showed him, I'm like, look, it's like one has 14 degrees of bounce. One has four. Mm -hmm. He was a little bit on the steeper side as far as his angle of attack. And for him, it just went, it went in a direction of like the bounce helped him sort of get in and out of the turf a little bit faster help the ball grab on the face a little bit more and that ball came out lower with more spin. And so don't ever judge a book by its cover is probably lesson number one. So when it, when you, when it sits down, don't necessarily judge it, right? Hit a few shots with it and see how it performs. Um, the other part of it is where do you play most of your golf? What type of conditions do you play in and what type of a swing do you normally have? Are you more on the steeper side? Are you more on the shallower side? What is your swing path? Where are you attacking the golf ball from? And the other part is, are you playing off surfaces like this in like, you know, Midland, Texas? Or are you playing up in Vancouver or Seattle where it's raining a lot? Because you don't necessarily want a four degree tee grind to be playing up in Seattle in the wintertime. That's not, that's not going to help you out. You want to you want to have as much bounce there so that you can be able to enter and exit with a little bit more help from the sole of the club. So those are some of the factors that kind of play into what it is you should look for when you go out and try a wedge. And I always tell people it's like number one option would be try to go and get find a fitting. It doesn't matter what club company. Um, obviously, I'm biased towards Titus. I think they make the best wedges. But if you don't have access to somebody that's showing up at your local golf course with a Titleist demo day and, and you have some other company, go and try it out. Um, try out the different grinds, the different bounces um, on these wedges because you never know what you're going to find. And, and hit it off of tight lies, hit it out of the rough, and hit it out of the bunkers. That would be my biggest suggestion um, because... There's some that will work great out of tight lies, but not as great out of bunkers. But you may be a player that you're like, oh, I'm great out of tight lies. I'm good, but I really struggle out of bunkers. I need something that helps me more out of bunkers. So I'm, I want to have something that's a little bit more bunker biased. I can chip with my 56, but I want a 60 that is great out of bunkers. Some players will set their sets up that way. So there's a lot that goes into the bounce what bounce is right for you. But again, it's, it's a lot of it is, is what is your angle of attack into the golf ball? A lot of it is how you release it, right? Like, are you, are you someone that holds on the way into the golf ball? Are you someone that releases it? Are you someone that's shallow, someone that's steep? And then where are you playing? Those are, those are the main factors. And if I can give you the biggest advice would be 
try, see if you can do like actual testing off of real grass, off of real bunkers. See if you can take four or five different wedges and try them out and just hit a few shots and see what the feedback is. There's never really a, a blanket right answer. It's always going to be varying on how you come into the ball, how you release it, um, and the type of turf you're playing off of. Last one. Finish this sentence for me. In 10 years, I'll be blank. Man, that is a deep question. Um, that is a really, really good question. I think like the, the five to six year plan would probably be to be out competing again on the Champions Tour. Um, 10 years? I mean, hopefully at that time, it's like I don't need to compete and, and, and maybe I, I'm, I'm out traveling the world with my wife and we're in Italy drinking great wine and, and you know, on the south of France just in, enjoying life. That would probably be what I would like to be doing in about 10 years. It's a good way to end it. He is at Short Game Chef on Instagram and his website, shortgamechef.com. If you suck at your wedge game, please go visit the website. Sign up, get good, and thank me later. Parker, this was fun, man. <laughs> Thanks, Jay Walls. You're the best. And that'll do it for episode 209 of Fully Equipped. I can't thank Parker enough for taking the time out of his busy schedule to make this one happen. As always, if you want more gear goodness, make sure you follow us on the social channels. We are at Fully Underscore Equipped on Twitter and at Fully Equipped Golf on Instagram. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy the Ryder Cup. We'll see you next week.